Welcome. Can you all hear me? Yes. Uh, my name is Taylor Greer, and I'm on the faculty of the School of Music. And in a few moments, you will meet my colleagues, Jennifer Trost and Arlene Schreck. Today, we three invite you to join us in a journey back in time to the Fancyette. We will listen to and immerse ourselves in the music of two composers, Claude Debussy and Alban Baer, and in the two artistic worlds where they lived, Paris and Vienna. These two form a study in contrasts. Both come from a distinct national tradition. Debussy, the quintessential French composer. His sensibility was based on refinement, on the search for nuance and color, ambiguity for its own sake. An artist who in his final works signed his name as Musicien Francais, or French musician. Baer was born out of the extraordinary flowering of culture in, in Vienna uh, between the turn of the century and the beginning of World War I. During this period, Vienna was a culture of extremes, where a deep faith in the traditions of the past coexisted with a climate of radical change, with a fascination for all things new, and where writers, painters, and musicians became obsessed with the unconscious, the darker forces of the human psyche. Now, the songs today will highlight differences in the evolution of each composer's artistic voice. For Baird, they signify an aesthetic in the process of formation. The songs essentially were a product of his youth. They reveal his deep ties to 19th century romanticism and his gifts for innate lyricism and expressiveness, which continued throughout his life. They also contain hints of his flair for musical drama. Debussy's songs, by contrast, appeared at the height of his artistic trajectory when he was in full command of his compositional powers. In some respects, Debussy's songs represent a kind of reaction against the German Romanticism that Berg was still embracing. Yet there are also points where Debussy's and Berg's aesthetic approaches converge. Both composers were nourished by art forms outside of music, especially literature, and as we'll see later today, painting. Both were the devoted to the genre of song, whether in the tradition of the French melodie or in German leader. Finally, it could be said that in their lives and in their music, both cultivated a kind of feast of the senses. And today, by listening to the poetry they loved, to the music it inspired, and by exploring the milieu where they lived, we hope to recreate the spirit of that interdisciplinary feast. Let us begin with Debussy. Here you see a photo of him from the early 1890s. Almost looks like he's on the way to a camping trip. <clears throat> we'll see other images of him, perhaps more distinguished in a minute. He spent 10 years in the French Conservatory, or the Conservatoire. He arrived as a pianist, he departed as a com composer. Next, we have a photo of him playing the piano at a friend's house, Ernest Chanson, another composer. 
uh, and even though it might seem a little staged to us, this would be a very typical and informal salon, so that he might be playing his own music, uh, he might be playing uh, some other's music, producing someone else would sit down next to him and make music together at the piano, four hands it's called. So this would be a typical kind of pattern uh, in the turn of the century. Here are a few key ingredients of his aesthetic approach. Throughout life, despite those years in the conservatory, he heaped nothing but scorn on the academy and its reliance on strict rules and formula. In his writings, he proclaimed, quote, there is no theory. You merely have to listen. Pleasure is the law. His works illustrate a kind of musical hedonism. He rediscovered the joys of sonority and texture for their own sake. He had a greater sensitivity towards sound, color, and instrumental timbre. He avoided exaggerated sentiment, one of the hallmarks of Romanticism. He was fascinated by suggestion, by improvisation and spontaneity. In 1901, he recommended this to young composers, quote, listen to no one's advice except that of the wind in the trees, end quote. Finally, in opera and in song, he used the vocal line to model the sound and the rhythms of the French language. It's one of the great ironies of his career is that he's been associated with Impressionist painters since some of his earliest works were performed. I'm thinking of Monet, Dugas, Renoir, these are names you all know. Yet he was not moved by their art in the least, and he resented being labeled with this term. In fact, he preferred paintings of Gustave Moreau, William Turner, a Brit, an Englishman, and James Whistler, an American who lived in Britain. And now we see uh, an image. This is one of William Turner's that Debussy would have been fond of. Notice it's a scene of a boat at sea. You can barely make out the vessel in there amidst all this motion, light, water, a swirl, <clears throat> painting literally in motion. He was also fascinated by the symbolist ideals of poets like Verlaine, Baudelaire, and Mallarmé. And to appreciate this, I zerk something for you guys in the program. In your program, you have multiple pages. And somewhere deep in the heart of your program, after all the translations, there's a little list of questions that a schoolgirl asked to receive in 1889 about himself and his art. Okay? And you can chase it down later. It'll be something for you to look at. If you want to look at it now, it's fine. Uh, and in, in this present political season, this could be known as an aesthetic opinion poll. The answers to some of these questions are rather amusing, and yet others are revealing. So for instance, he says uh, his idea of happiness would be to love, and his idea of misery is an overheated train. A little bit lower in this list of questions he asked, the, the, the little girl asked who his favorite authors, his painters, etc. He's pretty straight, it seems to me, and you see some of the composers that he admired. Uh, there's an error in this, alas. I typed it up and didn't quite have it clear. The, the uh, favorite hero in real life, that actually is a person, the name is wrong. It's actually Skolbadev. He's a Russian military general. Uh, so I got that wrong. Anyway, you can make the correction if you want. If the 18th century were the age of enlightenment, then the 19th century was the age of exposition and of spectacle. Paris hosted three of them, 1878, 1889, and 1900. This fair fever was contagious, 
as witnessed by the World Columbian Exposition in Chicago of 1893. That was the 401st anniversary of Columbus discovering America. I don't know why they're one year behind, but nevertheless. Paris hosted this Exposition Universelle, or World's Fair, in 1889 to mark the centennial of the French Revolution. And here we see a great symbol of that fair. Located on the right bank in the heart of Paris, between May and late October 1889, this fair attracted 30 million visitors. And the Tower of Iron that you see here became its central architectural symbol and its most enduring legacy. Here's a series of before, during, and after images. Uh, as this thing was being built, it took over two years. Many of the artists, particularly the writers, were absolutely furious because as it slowly assembled, they thought it was an eyesore. They thought it was despicable, this metal tower, this uh, symbol of modernism. They couldn't stand it. And Eiffel, or Eiffel, Gustav Eiffel, heard all these criticisms and he said, wait till it's finished, they'll love it. And he was right. At the fair, Debussy was exposed to the music of the Far East, in particular, Indonesia and Annam, only we would now call that Central Vietnam. At the foot of this tower was a recreation of a Javanese village of over 60 people, men crafting batik, women weaving straw hats, and children at play. Here we see uh, a couple of images of the, this nice slow impact here. The Javanese dancers. First on the left, you've got the photograph of these four. They were royal dancers, performed at court regularly, and they brought virtually the court with them. And then you on the right, you see a bit of an etching that might suggest the dance that they performed. Uh, the music accompanying this dance was called Gamelon, and it touched Debussy deeply. Years later, it awakened new sounds and rhythms and harmonies. Here's the opening of a piano piece. Uh, it's called uh, Cloche à travers les feuilles, or bells through the leaves. I think you can hear a little bit of inspiration from these gamelon sounds. Sources and yet integrated them into his own aesthetic. 
Now, the author of the poetry that you'll be hearing sung today is Pierre Luis, a man of many faces. You can see. The first is, this is a photo of Debussy in Luis's studio. Much more distinguished, much more elegant. Luis was a hedonist. For example, after in, having inherited a great wealth uh, in the early 1890s, he proceeded to spend virtually every sou, every penny of it, in three years' time. Maybe some of us can relate to that. Some of us relate to the financial world. Now we see a photo of Luis himself with a big stash. He was a gifted writer, wrote highly successful poetry and novels, one entitled Aphrodite, Ancient Manners. It became a bestseller of the day, sold over 300,000 copies. He had a fascination for ancient Greek culture, and he was something of a gender ventriloquist. He imagined a range of emotions, including physical intimacy between women. But most important, he was a creative stimulus and a loyal supporter of Debussy. Luis and Debussy were extremely close, sharing views on food, women, books, and music. Here's a photo taken of Debussy's lover at the time, Gabriel Dupont, in Luis's studio. He wrote him a letter, Debussy wrote, quote, among my friends, you were certainly the one I loved the most. Both men married women whose first names rhymed with their own surnames. And this is something that they took real great pride in. They both wrote about it. So, Louis Pierre's wife's name was Louise Louise. And Debussy's first wife's name is Lily Debussy. Right? So, they rhyme, you think, okay, big deal. They both loved that. And they just savored that idea of having that nominal harmony. <clears throat> now we turn to the Chanson de Bilitis. This, in fact, is an elaborate literary hoax that Louis staged. He succeeded in fooling readers and critics alike, even a handful of classical scholars. He published 143 prose poems, as if they were French translations of some Greek poetry found on the walls of a tomb in Cyprus, written by a woman named Pilitis, who was a courtesan contemporary of Sappho, a real great writer at the time. To give authenticity to this forgery, Louis listed some poems as untranslated in the index. He even provided a short bio of Bidetis. Although most of Bidetis, the chanson, that is the songs, uh, that's the names of the poems, chanson de Bidetis is original work. Some poetry in the collection is actually we work from previously published anthologies, and he even borrowed a few verses from Sappho herself. Nevertheless, these poems are a blend of mellow sensuality and polished Parnassian style. The discovery of this hoax did little to taint their literary value in the eyes of most readers. And Luis's open and sympathetic celebration of lesbian sexuality made him an instant sensation and earned him historic significance. Now we turn to Debussy's second of these poems. There are in fact three of them. The first is for voice and piano, and you'll hear them performed in a moment. Uh, could we have the next slide? The first version of the, that is the first published version of these scores was in a journal called L'Image, and the cover was by Toulouse Autrec, 1897. One of the three songs was published. The second version was a chamber version for two flutes, two harps, and celeste, about 1900, 1901. This was uh, fashioned for a tableau vivant, that meaning a, a recitation of 
a number of poems, uh, 14 in fact. So, well, 12 poems anyway, a number of them, more than just the three. And then Debussy's music was interspersed between the narration and reciting. So it was about a poetry reading uh, accompanied by music on the side. Uh, the music and the poems were recited and performed while models strolled around posing nude and semi-nude. There's a much less racy version, finally, in 1914, where he recomposed them again as piano forehand music called Six Antique Epigraphs. Here we have a few illustrations, uh, editions of the original uh, Pierre Louis's versions. This is uh, 1926. You see line drawings there. Yeah. And the three that you'll be hearing today, the poetry and the Debussy settings, would be more along the right-hand side where a man is speaking to a woman. And the next one. And that's a 1904 from a woman named Laurence, the illustrator. The next slide is uh, taken from Debussy's, that's a kind of a publicity shot of the soprano, the leading soprano in his most famous and basically his only opera. Pelias in Melison. This is a Scottish singer named Mary Garden, and it's a publicity shot because she's wearing an incredible, you know, waved hair. It looks like uh, something outrageous. Uh, and yet, this is something that fascinated Debussy in his opera, as well as in his choice of the second uh, song today, the text, which you'll be reading in due time. Shall we welcome Jennifer and Arlene, who are going to perform for us? Oh, 
He belonged to the Holy Trinity, you might say, of the Viennese avant-garde. That trio being Arnold Schoenberg, who's the enfant terrible, the emancipator of, dis of dissonance. Then there's Anton Weber, who's a master of aphorism. And finally, Alban Berg. Berg was kind of a Janus-faced character. One, voice, one face gazing back into the 19th century, the other looking forward towards some modernist future. Alban was one of four children, born into an artistic household. His younger sister, Smaragica, was a pianist. His older brother, Carl, was a singer. Very possible that the early songs you'll be hearing were first performed at a family gathering. Here's a shot of Alban. Great. More pensive. <clears throat> you see his physique. I didn't give you a whole shot of him. He's a very tall man. Uh, slightly feminine features in his face. Some people think he resembles an Oscar Wilde cat. I don't know. The next photo is an interesting one. This is a bear leaning out the window. That's him. And then there's this painting beneath him. You should be familiar with this if you notice the cover. It's on the cover of your program, and there's the cover of the flyer. Because this is a painting, a portrait of Bear by his teacher, Schoenberg. And they're kind of playing with the idea of Bear and then Schoenberg on Bear in this photo. As a teenager, Bear was a self-taught musician, drawn to vocal music. He composed nearly 70 songs before he began studying with Schoenberg, beginning in 1905 for the next six years. His most notable works include operas, two of them, Otsek and Lulu, the violin concerto, and finally many Lieder. Schoenberg exerted an almost hypnotic power over his two students. And at the beginning, the teacher usually overshadowed the pupil. Schoenberg cultivated the potential in each of his students, however. And Berg's and Webern's music does not sound at all depending on how you think of it, like their teacher's music. It's very distinct. Yet later, all three composers were subjected to overwhelming criticism. They became considered revolutionaries in Vienna. Uh, for instance, there was a famous concert in 1913, right before the war. There was a concert in Paris that year, uh, where the Rite of Spring was premiered. It's a very famous concert because the crowd erupted in a riot. It's known in general. But there was a concert two months before that in Vienna, which was pretty raucous. Uh, there was music of Schoenberg, of Ebert and Baird. And the first time was mostly Schoenberg, right? And the Viennese didn't like it much. And when they didn't like it, they didn't scream. They didn't yell. They did this. And very restrained. They shook keys. Anybody have a key? Okay. Hardly a revolution. They were hardly right. Well, by the time the second half happened, Baird's one of his songs, not thinking about what we're hearing tonight, but something a little later, ventures. It started in, in this orchestral, so it's orchestra accompaniment. The crowd really got mad and grumpy, and they never finished, so it was interrupted like a riot. So there were two concerts in 1913 interrupted by the crowd, and the first was in Vienna. All these shaking of keys and this public humiliation finally led these three composers to form a society called Society for Private Performances by invitation only. Needless to say, they did not invite the critics. All right, he was not prolific as a composer. He suffered from ill health most of his life. He had asthma and then other maladies. Uh, one day, one night, he, he was on vacation, in fact, uh, and not just asthma, but a little more. He came, came down with a really nasty cold, I think. And so they called a doctor who was in the hotel. Is there a doctor in the hotel? And they got Sigmund Freud. <laughs> 
who happened to be vacationing at the hotel. So they met. So it's not as if Bear really ever um, saw Freud regularly. Another reason why he wasn't prolific is that he was a perfectionist, constantly working over his music. The history of the early songs that we'll be hearing, uh, he composed them all in 1905-1908, right at the time he had started studying with Schoenberg. But later, in 1927, he went back into his portfolio, his notebooks, and chose seven of these early songs from the early period as a gift to his wife, Elena. And we have a picture. Elena. These were published in two forms, one for voice and piano, and then one year later, all seven were set for voice and orchestra. We will hear excerpts from both sets today. Now, first, there is a bit of French cross-fertilization in these songs. Debussy's influence is apparent in The Night, the first song, in that exotic scale that you might notice when it's played in a minute. Uh, he discovered this music through his sister, who already knew about some of Debussy's music and knew how But for the most part, these songs show the influence of the German romantics, so composers like Brahms, Wolf, and Mahler. The poets, kind of uh, odd bedfellows, an assortment of German and Viennese authors uh, from the mid 19th, uh, mid 19th century to early 20th century, most famous would be Rilke. And now we have a few excerpts from Jennifer. The first is the opening of the first song called Night, and they'll perform just the opening section. Song will be hearing is from the second song, Schildlied. 
Uh, this is from the middle, throwing you in the middle of it, to the end, so you're hearing the last part. And I'm interested in this, for you to hear this, uh, the text starts where the po poet and narrator is talking about crying, weeping, so there's some grief there. Uh, it's not exactly clear why, but he's in the middle of the woods and he's full of emotion. And then the mood shifts, slowly, gradually, till the end where he thinks he hears the sound of his lover, the woman's voice, singing by the end. Let's hear how that's. It does not mean 
a surrender to one's own will. Rather, it is an immense strength that lies in us, the pivot of all being and thinking. In this, I am declaring firmly and certainly the great importance of sensuality for everything spiritual. Only through understanding sensuality, only through a fundamental insight into the depths of mankind, can one arrive at a real idea of the human psyche. That was 1907. There's kind of a paradox in these early songs. Um, if you think about it in relationship to the context of his life, on the one hand, they're the last gasp of labor medicine. You've already heard a little bit today. You'll hear more. But at the same time, Baird was completely immersed in the whirlwind of change witnessed in all the arts. And there was a new aesthetic in the process of formation. For him, it was, truly was a, quote, moment of change, end quote. I want you to see this. Uh, in, in a, a variety of images here. Uh, he was fascinated with a wide range of human emotions, as if he joined a team of psychological explorers intent on mapping the topology of the human psyche, especially the subconscious. The song is at an initial stage in this psychological journey. Shall we have the first slide? I wanted to give you a portrait gallery of some of his favorite artists and thinkers. He was very interested in art and especially literature. Here's the first. We haven't seen a picture of Schoenberg yet. Here it is. But it's a painting by Egon Schiele, who was very much an experimentalist at the time. Next shot, even more important. This is a self-portrait of Arnold Schoenberg, about 1910, I guess it is. Yeah. So about the same time, a little later. Uh, and you, it's a, the title of it is Red Glare, Red Gaze, Red Something. And this is obviously a troubled soul. He was uh, an occasional portrait maker. Most of his stuff was of himself, his portraits. Uh, so you might think it's fairly bizarre business, but he wanted to get inside not only of his own life, he was trying to reach in uh, into the internal life of his listeners as well. Let's turn to a different slide now, something a little bit different and highly contrast. This is a little hard to see. Uh, this is Gustav Klimt. Uh, title of it is Love, Amour. At the bottom, you can barely see the guy. You can see the woman wearing a nice white blouse, staring up. She's looking up into the eyes of her partner, her lover, who knows. And they're on the verge of a kiss. All right? So physical embrace. Fairly traditional, romantic scene. But move up now. All right? On your far right, you see an image. Maybe it's the same woman. Maybe it's her mother when she was young. Who knows? Strong resemblance. Then you go to the middle. It's of a young child. Can't quite tell what. Then on the far left, can barely make it out of this weird skeleton, dark image. So what's that all about? It's some demon hovering over the two while they're embracing. Gustav Klimt loved this kind of thing. This is early Klimt. He was fascinated by traditional uh, beauty, that is, in this case, realistic forms uh, of a pair. The next shot will be a little more dramatic. Okay, this is a nude, of course, a nude of Veritas of the room. Truth here, notice the snake wrapped around her legs. But the nudism isn't the main thing for me. It's what she's holding in the right hand. What's she holding? A mirror. And she's holding that up to you, the viewer. She wants you to look inside to see your truth that's there to be revealed. This is about the viewer as much as about herself. This is what Clint was fascinated by in painting after painting. How about the next one? Just a line drawing, you see more women. He obviously was in love with the uh, ideal of feminine beauty. 
these women are floating, maybe sleeping, I don't know, long tresses in water, something that could be very appealing, and yet there's this weird monster fish thing there, what's going on, you know? So he combines these two things, it's very strange. He won't let you settle on their, their form. They have, you have to figure out what they have to, what they have to do with this other. There's something paradoxical, something conflicting in this image, typical Clint. He was part of a group called the Secession, a group of artists who were seceding, they were, they were through, they were trying to break away. Their, their motto was, to every age, it's art. To art, it's freedom. All right, one more. Here's a writer, his name is Carl Krauss, a photograph. He was a, uh, he wrote a, a journal, a periodical called The Fafa, or The Torch, uh, and it came out whenever he felt like writing it. It wasn't regular. Sometimes it would come out once every two weeks or so. Sometimes there would be six months between issues. One issue could be three pages, four pages. The next issue would be 110 pages. So it represented his own indulgence. He was an incredibly passionate writer. His sardonic wit was very sarcastic. He was attacking many of the basic institutions, particularly the media, the newspapers, the magazines. He was really frustrated with much of them, with the hypocrisy and things that he thought were, were despicable around him. Uh, next image is a painting of him by none other than Oscar Kokoschka. Kokoschka was another painter of the day. Uh, Baird was very involved, was moved by his works. Uh, this is pretty tame for Kokoschka. His stuff is really pretty violent, pretty disturbing. Here you see Krauss, and it kind of looks like Frankenstein, I don't know, this weird red on his forehead, I don't know if you can see that. But still, he's a little troubled, so there, <clears> that he has. Uh, this is later, 25. So Krauss was one of the leading uh, iconoclasts, leading uh, rebels questioning many of the traditions in Vienna at this time. And finally, you have an image of Sigmund Freud. And this is kind of a curious thing because you've got all these statues there in front of him on his desk, you know, images of some deep force or something anyway, and he's staring out from behind. Uh, so Baird never saw him, but Alma Mahler did. Right? And there were others. That is, the Viennese world was not as large as you might think. So while they maybe didn't go out to dinner regularly or coffee, so many people knew each other. So now we're talking about <clears throat> Schoenberg's own paintings, but Schoenberg's music. We're talking about Oscar Schiele. I'm sorry, Schiele. We've got Kokoschka, Krauss. So we've got painters, writers, artists, uh, and musicians. And it was a small world. They knew each other's experiments, and they were excited by them. Finally, we have a picture of Mahler. We turn to Gustav Mahler. We've heard me talk about him, when you see his image. Uh, he not only was a conductor of the opera for years, he finally stepped down and continued, devoted himself to composition. Uh, he was very devoted to new music, and particularly Arnold Schoenberg and his students, later full-fledged composers of themselves. He, was, he didn't understand it, he said. I don't know, I can't really embrace your work, but I have to because it's the new way, and I support you no matter what you do. So he was a big supporter of all their music, right? And likewise, uh, they were very, very excited when a new Mahler symphony would be premiered. Here's the beginning of the fifth symphony, right? So it's a little before the early songs, 1904, uh, it was premiered, but I want you to hear the beginning, particularly, uh, I want you to hear the new sound system we have in our home. 
No. Uh, it's orchestral music, so I can't resist. This is a really beautiful chamber recital you're about right here. But I want to share something big, all right? This is Mahler. It's the beginning. It starts out with a really dramatic thing, solo trumpet. It's heroic. It's triumphant. Something big. And within about a minute, it's all gloom and doom. Oh, my goodness. You see what you This is a, a city which was 
constantly involved with new music. Vienna, on the other hand, following 1908, would witness one of the most extreme experiments in atonality and sheerly intellectual approaches to composition. And Baird would participate in some of the most radical experiments. I hope the combination of this verbal prelude and the performance to come will have helped awaken you to the subtlety and sensuality of this music. Thank you.
Stop. 
Some more. 